Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, I don't know about you, but this week I just felt like we all needed a little bit more kindness in our lives. Um, So I have brought together a little extract from a book that you might have heard of already. It's called The Language of Kindness, A Nurse's Story by Christy Watson. Now, I thought this book was particularly poignant for the future and, and, and a real... And a real spark, a real manifesto um, to get us through the end of this January and on into the next thing uh, that we might be facing in our lives. Um, Christy Watson, if you don't know, um, was a nurse for 20 years. uh, And in this book, she takes us from birth to death, quite literally with her patients, from A&E to the mort. Uh, It's an astonishing account of a profession defined by the acts of care, compassion and kindness Um, and it's been a number one Sunday Times bestseller uh, this month, you must look it up Uh, it's just come out in paperback and it's brilliant so I thought I would give you uh, the first little snippet um, of this book to give you a little bit of an injection of kindness into your week so without further ado, uh, here is the first part of The Language of Kindness A Nurse's Story by Christy Watson I walk across the bridge towards its jagged-edged shadow, watch the pale blue, almost green, grey light dancing on the water below. It is dawn. Everything is quiet. A full moon. A couple of women swerve past me wearing party clothes and smudged mascara. A man in a sleeping bag is slumped against the wall, a coffee cup beside his head containing a few coins. There is hardly any traffic, but for a few black cabs and the occasional night bus. But there are other people like me heading to the hospital. A uniform of scuffed, flat shoes, rucksack, pale face, bad posture. I turn into the hospital grounds and walk past a small church in the courtyard, which is always open. Inside, it is dark and lit by dull lighting and candles, with a book full of messages and prayer requests on the altar. The saddest book you will ever read. The staff are rushing in through the main entrance, some pushing bikes, others walking with purpose, trying not to catch the eye of anyone anxiously searching for information, carrying a letter and an overnight bag, holding the hand of a crying child or pushing an elderly relative in a wheelchair, a blanket tucked over their knees. At 9am, there will be a volunteer to help the lost, wearing a banner that reads, How can I help you? This is Ken, who is 70 and whose granddaughter was treated at the hospital for sepsis following treatment for ovarian cancer. I want to help people like me. It's the little things. He gives out maps of the hospital layout, directions and a smile. The map of the hospital is colour-coded and there are coloured stripes on the floor for people to follow. At least once a day, someone will sing and skip as they follow the yellow stripe We're off to see the wizard. I walk past the reception seating area, where even more people are huddled together, rich and poor, disabled and able-bodied, people of all races and cultures and ages. Often, I see the same woman, wearing slippers and reeking of urine, sitting next to a trolley filled with plastic bags, muttering to herself. Sometimes she shouts out as if she's in pain, and a security guard's face will pop up at the hatch to check for disturbances, before disappearing again. But today, she's not there. Instead, I see an elderly woman wearing a thick red coat, despite the hospital heating. She looks up at me for a few seconds with frightened, sad eyes. 
she seems completely lost and alone, despite the dozen or so people around her. Her hair, once curled, is now unwashed and half flat. It reminds me of my nan's hair when she got sick, and how she hated not having a perfect blow-dry. She closes her eyes and rests her forehead on her hands. I love walking through the hospital. Hospitals have always been places of sanctuary. King Pandukabaya of Sri Lanka, who lived from 437 to 367 BC, built lying-in homes in various parts of his kingdom. The earliest evidence anywhere in the world of institutions dedicated specifically to the care of the sick. The earliest psychiatric hospital was in the Islamic world, built in Baghdad in 805 AD. These early hospitals were forbidden by law to turn away patients who were unable to pay for care. The Kalawan Hospital in 13th century Egypt stated, All costs are to be borne by the hospital, whether the people come from afar or near, whether they are residents or foreigners, strong or weak, low or high, rich or poor, employed or unemployed, blind or sighted, physically or mentally ill, learned or illiterate. I walk on, past the gift shop where congratulations and with sympathy cards are separated by get well soon. I pass the tiny clothes shop where nobody ever buys clothes, but the shopkeeper tells good stories and knows everything that is happening in the hospital. On to the public toilets where patients collapse, inject heroin and occasionally are attacked, once even raped. Opposite the toilets are the newsagents and the 24-hour cafe where sour milk from the broken coffee machine once flooded onto the life-saving defibrillators stored in the basement below. I turn the corner and glance back at the woman in the thick red coat, nearly colliding with a kitchen assistant pushing a giant metal trolley which smells of bleach, mould and aeroplane food. Left of the coffee shop are the lifts, where there is always a cluster of people waiting. The hospital is built on expensive land and grows vertically. Most of the wards are above the main veins and arteries of the ever-expanding hospital buildings but the long wards, with their many windows, are still recognisable as having the same architectural layout that Florence Nightingale suggested, recognising the role of good architecture and hospital design in improving patients' health. She recommended that ward layouts comprised of long, narrow blocks with tall windows, maximising the fresh air and sunlight. In her correspondence between 1865 and 1868 with the Manchester architect Thomas Worthington, Nightingale also highlighted the practical needs of the nurses. Will the scullery be sufficient accommodation for a nurse to sleep in, if necessary? I imagine her footsteps and watch my own as I pass the patient transport area, where there is an entire room full of people waiting to go home, too sick to travel by public transport and too poor to go by taxi. None of them have relatives to collect them. The patients are sitting in wheelchairs and plastic chairs, wearing coats or dressing gowns and blankets, looking at the automatic doors for the face of a stranger, looking past the automatic doors at the sky outside, its emptiness. The vending machine whirs untouched behind the row of chairs. I wonder if these people, most of them elderly and frail, are hungry or in pain or frightened. I already know the answer. The waiting room to leave the hospital seems fuller than the waiting room to get in. Everything is relative. 
patients may not feel lucky to suffer a serious injury and be fighting for their life in accident and emergency, A&E. But if they have family and friends with them, then maybe they are lucky. The porter's lodge door opens and slams continually into a line of empty oxygen cylinders looking like giant skittles. A woman with frizzy hair and drawn-on eyebrows has a Madonna-esque earpiece and microphone and a switchboard pad in front of her. She is someone I spend time trying to befriend. But despite my best efforts, she barks, Can I help you? Every time I say hello as if I'm a stranger. Still, I persist. The pharmacy is next door, a giant sweet shop for adults. There are trays that pull out and miles of lines of different tablets. The inside of the pharmacy is like a trading floor on Wall Street. Down a low-lit staircase to the basement where certain drugs are organised into emergency boxes, labelled whenever they are opened, to ensure they are not tampered with, then restocked and sealed. Many of the drugs are used in the UK without NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, approval. This is not uncommon. In paediatric use in America, for example, only 20-30% to of drugs are FDA approved. Drugs reps are salespeople and they used to be a source of excitement in hospital. They are easy to spot. Like the pharmacists, they are better dressed than the doctors. A uniform of designer clothing and the manner of a car salesman, plus the ability to get the attention of a busy consultant and pass the consultant's secretaries, mean that a good-looking undercover army of 20- and 30-year-old graduates who didn't quite get the grades for medical school regularly visit hospitals. A visit on the wards from the drug rep used to mean pizzas, pens, notebooks and other gifts. Transparency means that drug rep lunches are now less luxurious and doctors are not allowed to be bribed to stock or prescribe one particular drug over another. The reps still give out promotional material though. All doctors and nurses have mugs and pens in their house with the name of a drug on them. And for a long time, my baby daughter had a favourite teddy bear that wore a T-shirt advertising an antidepressant. There is a small hatch and a constant stream of student nurses waiting for TTO to take out a drug prescription that a patient is taking home, like a takeaway from a restaurant, and a door where you have to get buzzed in for certain drugs or fluids. My office is three floors above the pharmacy. It is an overhot, overstuffed carpeted room with exposed pipes and rat traps outside the door but we're not in here much. I look around the room for a few seconds my eyes sweeping the table on which rest out-of-date endotracheal tubes and faulty defibrillator pads. They were sparking but it's anecdotal so we don't need to panic yet. There are sachets of stolen brown sauce from the hospital canteen where we stop occasionally for toast or fried breakfast after receiving a handover from the site nurse practitioners, the SMPs, the senior nurses who manage the hospital overnight and deal with all manner of hospital issues, from bed management to critical incidents, security and terrorist attacks. Also on the table are the thick medical notes of a patient who died, waiting to go back to the bereavement office, plus a large tub of decaffeinated coffee which I was told on my first day had been there, unused, for years. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Um, the Language of Kindness, A Nurse's Story by Christy Watson is out now. Uh, you've just been listening to the audiobook, so if you'd like to continue to listen to that audiobook, it's available on Audible for you to download. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can hear more episodes like this one. Come and follow us at Vintage Books on Twitter and Instagram. We are doing a whole year of reading women this year. So if you want to join the Vintage Women Book Club on Facebook, you can go to po.st slash vintagewomenbookclub and join us there reading women all year. So exciting. Another bit of news this week, if you've somehow missed it, um, The Testaments, which is Margaret Atwood's prequel to The Handmaid's Tale, uh, which is being released later this year, has just had its big cover reveal. So if you want to go and see the new cover of The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, you must go to our Instagram at Vintage Books to see that. Let us know what you think in the comments. I'm really interested to see how you feel about that one. And I think that's all my notes. I hope you have a great week of reading and until next time. Bye.